Let's pray. Father, we do thank you we can be here, and I pray that the words of my heart and the meditations of our hearts, words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. doubt. Mary had believed in God for many years, but lately she'd begun to wonder, is this Christian faith just a myth, or have I been conned? Doubt. John's child was killed in a car crash at the age of eight. He was playing chicken on the Pacific Highway after school. And tragically, he was run down by a car. John was a regular churchgoer at this stage. His wife ran the kids' ministry. But he wondered deeply, where is God in the midst of my loss? And he stopped going to church. Susan, well, she's new to the Christian faith, but she's got so many questions. Is Jesus really the only way to God? What about other religions? They all seem such nice and sincere people, my family, and the doubts grow. And the list could go on because doubt, I think, is one of those experiences that in some way will shape or form all of us. All of us will have had some experience of doubt or questions that were raised about the Christian faith. And we heard some of them that were raised tonight, and thank you for those who shared And we're in the middle of the school holidays and I wanted to talk and just do a different uh, message between series and there's no doubt for me this is one of those issues that we kind of all experience at some point in our life but often is not spoken about in Christian circles or in church. The whole reality that we at some point in our life will have doubts in our faith. And so I thought it's a good chance to address this very important topic and I want to start by asking the question, what is doubt? What is doubt? The word doubt comes from a word meaning to. To believe, if I can put it this way, is to be in one mind. And you accept something as true, you believe it. Now to disbelieve is to be in one mind where you reject a truth. To doubt though is to waver between the two. It's neither to believe something but it's also not to disbelieve it, it's to be caught in two minds between believing and disbelieving. And I say that because in too many churches, doubt is the opposite of faith and it's really viewed as being unbelief, not caught between belief and unbelief. And I found this quote very helpful by a guy called Gordon Ventrula. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief so that it's neither of them wholly and it's each only partly. And if I could put it up on the screen as a diagram, you've got belief on one side, unbelief on the other, and then you have doubt in the middle. You're caught between the two. And that's what I think doubt is about. And when you go through the Bible, you'll see many people who experience doubt. One classic example is the father whose child has been possessed by an evil spirit and he wants this child to be healed 
And with some measure of faith, he brings him to Jesus. And he's already tried the disciples. They've not been helpful. And he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus engages with him. And the, the boy's father exclaims these words. I do believe, but help me un- overcome my unbelief. And you see there, that's the reality of death. I've got some belief, but I've also got mixed with it some unbelief. And I'm struggling between the two of them. And so if doubt is not the same as unbelief, what are we to make of it? Well, I want to say this, in too many churches, people who have doubts can be made to feel inferior. Uh, we can inadvertently make people think that if you doubt, you've not thought through your position about the Christian faith. It might even be to the extreme of being made to feel like you're not a very bright person if you haven't come to the same kind of faith that we have. You don't believe like I believe. And we need to be very wary of that. I had a girl who, she's actually joined our church, and in thinking about joining us, one of the questions she said, is it okay to ask questions? She said, at the church I once went to, you couldn't ask questions. You just had to believe and accept what the minister said. And I said to her, actually, I don't think you can learn unless you ask questions. And you see, that's why I love what C.S. Lewis once said. To believe with certainty, one has to begin with doubting. To believe with certainty, one has to begin with doubting. You see, doubting is when you're in between the two and where you're asking questions, trying to work out what is it that you actually believe. And what's fascinating is when you go through the Bible, so many of the great figures of faith were also people who went through some significant periods of doubt. And so let me just take you through four of them that stand out for me. The first is Abraham and Sarah. And if you've got your Bibles there, I'll give you the verses and uh, the page numbers if you want to follow along. The first one at the very beginning is Genesis chapter 18, and it's um, Abraham and Sarah. And it's that classic story in chapter 18 where Abraham and Sarah have been promised by God that they will be given a child. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, um, they're given this promise when Sarah is 90 years old. Now, I had a bit of fun with the uh, 8 o'clockers this morning, and we actually don't have many women there 90. We've got quite a few in their 80s, though. And I said to them, can you imagine, you know, in five years' time, being given the promise of a child? Now, I remember preaching on this at my last church, and I was at the night service, and we actually got one of our 90-year-olds up, and we interviewed her about her faith. At the very end of it, I said to her, now tell me, Val, how would you feel if God said you're going to have a child? And the whole place just roared with laughter. And when you get to this passage in Genesis chapter 18, what you see is Sarah laughs. She thinks it's ludicrous. And you see, what she's doing is she's doubting the promises of God. She doubted God's promise. And I think the reality of what we find in the Bible is we find some incredible promises there. Probably the most central one is this, that God will forgive our sins and grant us eternal life when we turn to him and trust him in faith and turn away from our sins. And not just that, but there is a new heaven and a new earth coming when the Lord Jesus returns. I mean, that is the most magnificent promise that you'll ever hear of. 
that we have an eternity ahead of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a bigger promise than having a child at 90. And I wonder if you've ever thought or found yourself doubting the promises of God, promises like that. Well, if you have, you're in good company. Abraham and Sarah doubted that God would do what he said he would do. Then you've got Moses. Now, Moses is one of the great ones in the Old Testament, but what is fascinating is as he begins his ministry of service to God, he doubts God's power to use him. And Moses was called by God to be the leader of God's people and the spokesperson for the people of Israel. And he was to be the one who confronted the Pharaoh with the claims of God. And when he was called, you've got the burning bush episode where he sees this bush burning in the desert but not burning up, just continuing to have fire. And God speaks to him and reveals his name. I am who I am. It's where we get the name Yahweh from. And then we read in the next chapter that Moses is being called to go and speak to Pharaoh and call Pharaoh to release God's people. And there's a number of things that happens. God in his graciousness says, look, I'm going to give you the power to do this and I'll give you some examples. And there's a, a staff that he has that he throws on the ground. It becomes a snake. He picks up the tail and it's now a staff again. He puts his hand in his pocket and God takes, he says, take it out and it's leprous. He puts it back in, takes it out. It's normal. And God does that to demonstrate to him that he will have the power. But yet you get to the end of the passage and Moses says, oh Lord, can you please send someone else to do it? <laughs> and God has just demonstrated to him that he's got the power, but yet he doubts that God can use him. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I remember feeling like that as a very young Christian when someone said to me, you should become a minister. And I remember thinking, well, that's a joke. And I doubted that God could ever use me in that way. And if you've ever doubted that God's power could work through you, well, you're in good company. And then you've got Elijah. Now, Elijah is also one of the great ones. And Elijah got to see some of the most incredible miracles in the Bible. Elijah was someone who'd answered the call of God. He'd become a prophet and he was speaking God's word and he was involved in doing some incredible miracles. His prayers had brought famine. His prayers had brought rain with a three-year gap. He'd helped resurrect a dead boy who had come back to life. He had fed and sustained a widow through months of famine. And then the most incredible thing, he'd had this showdown with the prophets of Baal and had called fire down. And yet at the end of it all, he gets chased by the evil queen Jezebel. And he thinks, I've had enough. God, what are you doing? You should be in charge here. And he literally, he runs away. Having seen all that God had done to deliver him and sustain him, he just bolts. And you get to... 1 Kings chapter 19, and a voice speaks to him, it's God. And you see, he's run right away from where he should be, and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, I'll have you know. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, they've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword, and God, look, actually, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. <laughs> and you can kind of hear the doubts like, what are you doing, God? Your plans are useless, is what he's saying. You're totally out of control. 
And I wonder if you've ever thought that. That life as it's unravelled. You've been trying to serve him, but it all seems to be just coming to nothing. And you think, God, where are you in all this? If you ever thought that, you're in good company. And then you've got uh, one of the great characters of doubt in the Bible, the Apostle Thomas. In fact, we love him so much, we call him Doubting Thomas. And Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve. And we read in John's Gospel, chapter 20, that he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. In other words, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he went back to his disciples to show them that he was truly alive, unfortunately, Thomas wasn't there and missed out. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I'll not believe it. And you see, he is doubting the passion here. And in particular, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there's a cynicism, which is not wrong at one level. He's kind of saying, look, I know you're saying it, but you might have seen a hallucination. I actually want to see it for myself. Because dead men don't come back to life, is in effect what he's saying. And in one of the most gracious, I think, responses of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus comes back to him in person and says, Thomas, you want to have a look? Okay, here's the hands. Here's the mark. And Thomas is humbled completely and bows down and worships him as his Lord and his God. And I could go on, but what you see when you read through the Bible is this, you find that the great ones who serve God all had doubts at different times and for different reasons. Here's a quote from one of the great reformers, Martin Luther. For more than a week, Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. Now, why do I tell you all this? I'd say this because at some point, all of us will have periods of doubt, I think, or most of us will. And I think it's very important to know that you're not the only one to ever experience this in whatever form it may come, because when doubt comes, you can feel very alone. And a natural emotional response is to think, where are you, God? And as you look out and you see other Christians living kind of with ease in their faith, you think, oh, is there something wrong with me? It's a reality that we go through. And so let me move to ask the question, why do doubts come? Well, firstly, and I think this is a very important thing to take note of, we are creatures, not creators. Now, the verse on the screen is one that was given to me by Graham Cole. He was my philosophy lecturer at Moore College. And Graham, I think, was one of the brightest people I've ever met. Um, I think he read at 2,000 words a minute. He had a photographic memory. Uh, The apocryphal tale about him, which I think was true, was that he could read two books simultaneously. And I remember my brother-in-law telling me a story about him. Uh, Nick, who's the chaplain at Shaw, uh, was sitting a first-year exam at Moore College and they'd just been sitting an exam the day before. And Graham was supervising the exam and he's marking the exams from the day before and the class is there head down busy and this is how Graham was marking the exam paper he's just going like this hmm put a mark on it next paper and there was that kind of brave student that's also you know a little bit dumb at one level puts his hand up in the middle of the exam 
because the whole class has gone quiet, noticing how quickly Graham was marking the papers. They reckon it was 20 seconds of paper. Dr. Cole, are they our papers that you were marking from yesterday? He goes, yes. Uh, Dr. Cole, you don't seem to be taking very long marking those papers. We spent a lot of time writing them and did a lot of work to prepare for them. And Graham went, well, this paper was strong here and here and here, and it says this and this and this, uh, but it omitted to say this and this and this, and uh, this was the argument, and this was its fallacies, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a bad paper, that's why I gave it a B. And the student went, oh, thanks, I'll go back to work. <laughs> now, Graham, who was this incredible brain, said to us these words, remember Deuteronomy 29.29 when you go out to work with people. I want to read it to you. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. And he said, one of the most important things that you need to have in life as a minister, and I would say as people who follow the Lord Jesus, is what he called epistemic humility. Now, just it's a kind of classic philosopher's phrase. Uh, Epistemic humility is a humility about what you know. Epistemology is the science of knowledge. And epistemic humility is about realising that actually we're not God. It's realising the reality that we actually don't have all the answers. Now, there is someone who knows all truth. And that is the Lord our God. But this verse says actually the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's a whole realm of knowledge that we will never know. And there's questions that relate to questions of justice and suffering, which have been raised tonight. And one of the realities is, Moses was saying to the people of God here in Deuteronomy, actually, there's a whole bunch of things you're not going to know. They belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. In other words, there is a revelation that's given to you by God that you can base your life on. In the midst of not knowing everything, there is stuff that you will know. And it actually is revealed to you in this word, the words of this law or instruction. And you see, as people who live on the other side of the cross, we have that word revealed to us foundationally in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're creatures. And so there's going to be a whole range of questions that we grapple with. We're actually where we're not going to have the answers for. And it's one of the reasons why doubts come. And it's one of the things that we actually have to live with not knowing everything. But secondly, we have doubts because we've got unbelieving hearts. Hebrews said, See to it, brothers, sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You see, the reality is we actually naturally don't believe in God. Even though we kind of we know he's there, and there's an order to creation, but yet we've got a heart that turns away from that and does not want to acknowledge that God is the one who runs this world. And that's the reality that we have to live with every day. Now you see it from the very beginning of Scripture when the devil, in the form of the snake, spoke to Eve. And do you remember the words that the snake said to Eve? Did God really say? And you see, our unbelieving hearts 
will so often question the word of God, what has been revealed to us, so that we go, did God really say that? And so there's an existential struggle in life as Christians that we will go through to fight against our hearts that disbelieve. And doubts will come. Thank God for the Spirit of God who brings light and revelation into our hearts and minds so that we can know the living God. And so doubt comes because we're creatures, we're not the creator. Doubts come because we've got unbelieving hearts. And doubt comes because life is just very tough at times. And we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's suffering. And I think of one of the most profound psalms and probably one of the most helpful psalms we find these words. It's Psalm 88. I don't know if you've read it recently. It's significant because Psalm 88 actually has no note of hope in it. And you might think, why is that significant? Why have we got a psalm in the Bible that's got no note of hope? When you read through Psalm 88, it is just a tale of despair and darkness and of someone who feels abandoned. And you get to the very end of the psalm and the last verse says this, you've taken from me my friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, there's a real sense that faith is being demonstrated here because the psalm is a cry to God, but at the end of it, all the psalmist can say is, God, you've taken away from me the one who is closest to me. And actually, who's with me at this point? It's just darkness. And the psalmist sits there in the dark with not a sense of hope, no ray of light to shine in. And you see, it's easy to believe in God when life is good. And when all is well, and when his blessings flow. But it's when life goes dark that we really ask the question, where are you, God? As we view the darkness of this world and the suffering of children, as Simon has said, we really ask the question, where are you, God? And I'm so glad this psalm is here in the Bible because it recognises this is one of the realities of life that we will walk through at some point in our life. There will be periods that are very dark. My own testimony, and I remember giving this when I first came to the parish, uh, about two months in for those who remember, back at the beginning of 2009, was when I was in second year at Moore College. And I'd gone there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and We'd moved into college, uh, into Little Queen Street, myself and Kath, and we were expecting a child. And I remember at the end of second year, Kath telling me these words, Bruce, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I'll give you some context for that phrase, that statement. Kath had come from a significant job as the women's minister at St Albans Linfield, um, She was now living in a very difficult, small, crowded, often cockroach-infested, more college residence. We had a great time there, but it was a struggle living there. The buildings were very old. She had a pregnancy that went 42 weeks, of which 38 she was sick every day. The actual labour went for 40 hours. She was even sick on the delivery table. She had two weeks in the hospital because of mastitis. Postnatal depression came very early, probably within three months. And after about six months, 
I remember her coming and talking to me and saying, Bruce, I don't even know if God's there. I don't even know if I believe in him anymore. Now let me say, when you're at Moore College and you're training to be a minister, they're not the kind of words that you kind of expect to hear from your wife. (laughs) And you think, oh boy. And it was very difficult. And I remember thinking, what do you do? And I asked Kath to tell me what it was like from her point of view and her experience. She said, there was no feeling of being connected to God or his presence, his love or his existence. She just felt alone in despair, confused and sad. She'd given up her career and job for God. And this had altered her history completely. And she came to feel and believe that there was nothing out there. And she felt completely conned. Why weren't you there, God, when I needed you? How could you do that? And as a consequence, nothing had meaning. And connected to being personally depressed, there was just darkness. And in her head, she knew that there must be a God from her past history, but she felt nothing in the present that that was real. And so what she did was she kept trying to read the Bible, but nothing would happen. She kept praying. She felt very alone. The Bible study group she was in was run by Christine Jensen, the principal's wife. Now that's a kind of difficult relationship to be in. (laughs) And that's not a statement about Christine because she got on very well with Christine. But when your husband's future depends on you believing in God to some extent... It's quite an awkward relationship. She felt very scared to tell people. She felt she would have been alienated socially. And she didn't want to jeopardise my future. Now in God's providence, she came through that, but it took many, many months before she started to improve. She used to ask me just to pray for her at night because she couldn't pray herself. And I asked her, what helped her get through? She said, continuing to come and be with God's people was, though very difficult, probably one of the most profound helps. And she said to me, if she'd stopped going to Bible study and church with me, she really believed she may have just fallen away completely. Now, God in his providence, I think, had taken hold of her and wouldn't have let her go, but she felt very strongly that that could have been a great reality. And you see, this is life. Tough things do come and they can lead to great periods of darkness and doubt. And so what do we do when doubts come? I want to give you four things to think about tonight before I finish. First is I think we actually need to admit to them in the sense of we need to actually talk to someone. What the devil wants us to do is to walk quietly out the side door of church, never talking to anyone because we're too ashamed or too afraid. And friends, if you've got doubts, this is a place you can come to. We are not here to condemn you or belittle you. We want to walk with you. And what you most need is actually someone who will listen to you and pray with you and be with you on that journey in spite of how you feel and what you believe at this point. 
You see, what we need to do also is treat doubt positively where possible because sometimes the doubts come because we've got all sorts of questions unanswered. And the reality is you can't know anything without asking a question. All of the great discoveries in life have come because people have been brave enough to ask questions. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, to come to strong belief comes through the doorway of doubt. It comes through asking questions and seeking to find out what is our faith really built upon? Where do you find certainty in this world and in this relationship with God? And so where possible, we need to treat doubt in a positive way and ask questions, knowing that some questions will never be answered because we actually are not the creator, we're just creatures. But also knowing that there are things that are revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and we can find assurance in him and in the historical reality that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world and lived and died and risen again. Thirdly, as my wife said, she continued to pray and when she couldn't pray, I prayed for her. And she continued to read the Bible. And I say this because you see, God is real. And he is spirit. And he will minister to our spirits and our minds in the midst of our doubts. And even when we're struggling, the Bible and the Lord would call us to come to him with our doubts so that he can minister to us. Psalm 145, 18 says this. And I remember reading this when I was a very young Christian going through kind of the initial phases of doubt, having believed and been excited. And it says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And when we're struggling, rather than turning away from God, we actually need to come to him with our doubts and call upon him and read his word because that's where he can speak to us from. And have others come alongside of us and pray for us. Because at the end of the day, faith is actually a gift of God. And you can come to God even with the smallest amount of faith, the Lord Jesus says. And then lastly, know that Jesus is still risen from the dead. I remember the late John Chapman, the great evangelist of Sydney, saying these words. He goes, friends, sometimes I wake up and wonder, should I go out and do my job today? and preach the gospel and he said I'd lie in bed having doubts why am I doing this is it really worthwhile is God really there and he said I'd have to talk to myself Chapo have they found any new evidence about the Lord Jesus not being raised from the dead no John okay have they found any evidence that the grave was not empty no John have they found any evidence John that the witnesses are not reliable who spoke about the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, John, well, get on and do your job, John. Now, if you know John, that's how he used to speak. And you see, this is the reality. There's a historic event that has been witnessed to faithfully and believed on through the ages. And in the midst of the questions, we can find our certainty and find our hope, even in the midst of darkness, in that great truth, that the Lord Jesus has come into this world. He has died for our sins, and he has risen from the dead. And on that truth, 
even with our doubts, we can base our life and find security and hope. Let me pray. Friends, I do thank you we can be, Father, I thank you we can be here tonight. And for those for whom Psalm 88 is real, darkness is their closest friend, I pray, Father, that light would break in. I pray, Father, they'd have friends who would walk alongside them in the midst of the darkness. I pray, Father, that we would continue to wrestle with our faith and the questions and the doubts we have and that you would speak to us through your word and you'd give us assurance in the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, help us together as we struggle to believe in you every day and go forward in this world serving you to have our faith strengthened through the living Christ and by his spirit. We pray this in his name. Amen.